Exchange of Radio. This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome back to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I know it's been a while since I've had an episode out, so that usually means you're going to get a bunch of episodes within the next few days, and that's exactly what it means this time. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the death of Marilyn Shepard, have you ever seen the TV show The Fugitive from back in the day, or the movie starring Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones? That is based on a real case, and it is way in-depth. There's a lot of stuff going on here that's going to be one of those episodes you're going to have to pay attention to, and I'm honestly 50-50 on it. So, I'm going to do what I always do. I'm going to provide you with all the information, and you can decide for yourselves. Before we go any further, I do have to give some credit where it's due, because there's some specific information that I did find on this case. First of all, huge shout-out to BuzzFeed Unsolved. This is where I initially saw this case to where it piqued my interest. It's one of the few cases I'm actually choosing for myself. I usually work on, uh, you know, suggestions and stuff like that, so it, it was interesting enough. I appreciate the fact that they covered it. Also, I gotta thank Fred McGonigal. This source is honestly unknown. I found this PDF that this dude wrote that's like four pages long. It's got some great information on it. I don't know why he wrote it. I don't know who he wrote it for, but it was on the fucking internet and had some great info. So thanks, Fred. Um, next one is Fox 8 Cleveland. Jen Steer in 2019 wrote a great, great expose called Who Killed Marilyn Shepard? And I mean, interest in this case is ongoing. All right. Like this didn't stop back in the 60s. So uh, another huge, huge source of information is the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Their School of Law program did a faculty project, and this is honestly one of the most amazing sources for this case. They cover the trial. They cover a lot of the evidence. It is an amazing plethora of information. Next up, pbs.org. They had a great, great uh, article like with a really good timeline on it, so huge shout to PBS. Other than that, got some new Patreon subscribers. We got Chris Monteith, Jeremy Wagner, Alyssa Berghoff, and David Kahn. So thanks very much. I hope you are appreciating the backlog of episodes on Patreon. I think we're up to like 70 or 75 right now. All different types of content on there. It's a mixed bag of stuff, so... For those of you who like, uh, you know, the podcast because I cover different topics, I do the same exact thing on Patreon as well. Also, huge shout out to Buddy Williams who uh, hit me up on Venmo. Thanks a lot for that donation, man. I'm really glad that you enjoyed the Billy the Kid and Doc Holiday episodes. Uh, much appreciated, much love. Uh, for those of you who are interested in Patreon, I have a two, five, and ten dollar tier. You can go to Patreon.com/slash Mysterious Circumstances. Check out the stuff on there. For those of you who would rather do like a one-time donation, I can send you some episodes. Hit me up on Venmo. 
at MC Podcast. I also do have some new reviews that need read. Um, I'm probably going to wait until I drop Wednesday's episode, which is the uh, the death of Superman, the original Superman, George Reeves. It's a collaboration episode with a podcast called The Tales We Tell, and uh, it's it's great episode, super informative, and we had a lot of fun, so go check their podcast out, or you can wait until uh, Wednesday, check out the collab episode, and decide if you if you want to from there. But either way... My name is Justin, this is Mysterious Circumstances, and you're listening to The Death of Marilyn Shepard. So let's start off with Sam Shepard. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, December 29th, 1923. He was an American neurosurgeon. Uh, On February 21st, 1945, he married Marilyn Reese. Uh, They were high school sweethearts. A couple years later, Sam Shepard Jr. was born, and he went by the nickname Chip. Sam was a very respected neurosurgeon. Um, He had a fucking white picket fence type life in a suburban neighborhood, man. He was doing pretty well for himself. So on July 3rd, 1954, the Shepherds hosted a party where they were doing dinner, drinks, and a movie, and they hosted neighbors Don and Nancy Ahern. Shortly after midnight, which would be July 4th, Sam fell asleep watching the late movie Strange Holiday, and Marilyn saw the guests out of the house and left him on the downstairs couch and went to sleep in uh, up in their bedroom. At 5.40 a.m., Mayor Spencer Hoke, who is a neighbor and a close friend of, of the Shepherds, gets a call from Sam saying, My God, Spence, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn. So Hoke and his wife, Esther, they hurried up, get dressed, they drive over to the house, it's a very short distance, right? And they arrive there at about 5.50 a.m. When they get there, Sam Shepard is in the study, he has no shirt on, he's holding the back of his neck, and he's in almost uh, a state of shock. Mrs. Hoke runs upstairs and finds Marilyn's body in this bedroom. All bullshit aside, I saw the crime scene photos, just covered in blood, alright? I mean, it was bad. So, Spencer Hoke calls the Bay Village Police at 5.57 a.m. 6.02 a.m., the first officer arrives, a guy by the name Fred Drinken. He arrives at the Shepherd home, and then between 6 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., more police officers show up, relatives show up, The press shows up, and neighbors show up to all walk around in the fucking house and look at everything. Now, I've heard of shit like this happening in older cases from like the early 1900s and shit, but legitimately, 1954, keep people the fuck out of a crime scene, dude. They had the press in there, like I said, there's there's pictures, man, there's a lot of pictures for this shit, so... Dr. Sam Shepard, he was in a lot of pain, okay, still holding the back of his neck and shit, so he is taken out of the house and he is taken to Bayview Hospital. At 8 a.m., a coroner by the name of Dr. Sam Gerber arrives. 
According to the police report, the body is found laying upwards on the bed, face turned towards the door, and she was beaten beyond recognition. There was blood all over the bed sheets. There were over 20 gashes on her face and scalp. I did read one place where it was 27, but there's blood dripping down the fucking walls. Her pajamas are partially removed as well. Um, her shirt was pulled up. I believe uh, one breast was exposed, and then her pajama bottoms were pulled down enough to be showing pubic hair. The autopsy determined that the time of death was between 3 and 4 a.m., and they also found out that Marilyn was four months pregnant with their second child. Now, I know all, all of you guys are like, well, what happened? What happened? So, the story that Sam tells, and he's told the same story several, several times. He was asleep downstairs. He heard his wife yell his name. He says he ran upstairs and saw, quote, a form with a light garment, I believe, at the same time grappling with something or someone, end quote. He heard moans and groans, and they uh, they ended up fighting, and Sam gets hit on the back of his neck and knocked out. So when he regains consciousness, his wife is covered in blood, and he goes and checks her pulse real quick and realizes that she is dead, and the form in the white garment or whatever is is gone from that room. So he hurries up and he runs to his son's room, who was still sound asleep, all right? And uh, he was seven years old at this point in time. But take note of that. His son is still sound asleep. So while he's checking on his kid, he hears a noise from downstairs, and he runs down there, and the back door was open, and he saw a form progressing rapidly toward the lake. It was a person, and he said that uh, he was about six foot three, middle-aged, with dark, bushy hair and a white shirt. So he chased the form across the lawn and down the wooden steps to the beach, which was about 50 feet below. Then he says, I lunged or jumped and grasped him in some manner from the back. It was either body or leg. It was something solid. And Sam struggles with the form. Then he felt himself, quote, twisting or choking, and this terminated my consciousness, end quote. So Sam wakes up again from being unconscious, and he says dawn was breaking at that point, which in July in this area, which I'm fairly close to uh, Cleveland, that's usually right around 5.15, 5.30 in the morning uh, in July. It's in between 5, 5.30, depending on, you know, cloud cover, all that good shit. Now, Sam could not say how long he was unconscious, but when he did come to, he staggered up the stairs to the house and the bedroom where his wife is laying dead, and he said, I believed or thought I was disoriented and the victim of a bizarre dream, and I believe I paced in and out of the room and possibly into one of the other rooms. I may have re-examined her, finally believing that this was true. Alright, so between 9.30am and 3pm, Dr. Shepard, who was under sedation and being treated for shock and neck injuries, which were the result of his struggle with an unknown intruder, he's visited several times and interrogated by the coroner, coroner's investigator, local police chief, two Cleveland police officers, and Bay Village police. By about mid-afternoon, Cleveland officer Schottke 
tells Shepard, I think you killed your wife. And the um, the coroner, Dr. Sam Gerber, when he showed up on the crime scene within an hour, had his mind made up that Sam Shepard was guilty of killing his wife. So we already have, you know, a couple people who are, they already have their minds made up. Now, a couple days later, on July 7th, 1954, the funeral for Marilyn Shepard happens, and unfortunately her son, Sam Jr., he wasn't even able to attend because of all the extensive press coverage, which is fucking sad. As you're going to come to find in this case, the media, man, you see it nowadays. All people read is a fucking headline, and once you're guilty by public opinion, there's no change in a lot of people's minds. Like, they lose their objectivity fairly quickly, and you'll see that happen in this fucking case really, really bad. Now, let me just say, this case, like, trial, the story, everything, was the O.J. Simpson shit of its time. Like, it was everywhere. So, the prosecutor in this case, he starts criticizing Dr. Sam Shepard for refusing to permit immediate questioning, even though he had already been questioned a shitload of times. The next day on July 8th, there's a headline that says, Testify Now in Death, Bay Doctor is Ordered. And this is like one of hundreds of articles that are being printed at this time. And a lot of these articles have a shitload of untruths, inadmissible information, and this is all going on for like the next few months. Like, I think it's Denzel Washington that, that said, you know, when it comes to the news or the press, it's not about having the right story, it's about getting the story out first. And that's the case that we see here. So on July 9th, the very next day, the front page story says, Dr. Balks at lie test. And uh, Sam Shepard leads a whole bunch of cops through the house, showing them what happened. Then the very next day, on July 10th, 1954, Sam Shepard voluntarily gives a formal statement, which is taken at the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office, and he's got a bunch of cops there while he's doing it. Fast forward to July 20th, the media is going absolutely crazy. He is already guilty in the court of public opinion, and every single person is calling for him to be arrested or, you know, indicted for this murder. Uh, one of the front page editorials said, someone is getting away with murder. All these papers are calling for his arrest, his conviction, all this. So the next day, the Cleveland Press comes out and says, Why no inquest? Do it now, Dr. Gerber. So literally later that day, he calls an inquest. Sam Shepard was subpoenaed to be there. This went on for three fucking days, okay? And it was an absolute media firestorm. On July 22nd, the beginning of the... The inquest is uh, it's staged in a local school gymnasium because there are so many people, so many reporters. It's on live television. It's on the radio. Dr. Shepard is searched in full view of a crowd. Dr. Shepard's lawyer is not permitted to participate and he's ejected altogether when he tries to introduce evidence. Shepard on that first day is grilled for five hours straight on live TV with no lawyer present. On July 23rd, Cleveland police formally take over the investigation of the murder from the Bay Village police, and for the first time, they send out a scientific investigation unit. 
Then, of course, a few days later, on July 26th, the headline reads, Police Captain Urges Shepherd's Arrest. Two days later, another editorial comes out that says, Why Don't Police Quiz the Top Suspect? Then another couple days later, in the morning of July 30th, there's a front page editorial that says, Why Isn't Sam Shepherd in Jail? By 10 p.m. that night, Dr. Sam Shepard is arrested and taken to City Hall. There are hundreds of newscasters, photographers, reporters. They're all waiting for him to get there. And Sam Shepard is formally arrested and charged with first-degree murder of his wife, Marilyn. Now, like I had said, the press plays a huge factor in this. In August, massive press coverage. They're making um, cartoons, you know, like drawing, you know, the like the political cartoons or the cartoons you see in the newspaper and shit. They're drawing pictures of this dude like walking around with a bloody murder weapon and shit. They got editorials coming out. There's all these rumors. Everything is just flaring up. By August 16th, 1954, the judge finds no evidence to hold Dr. Shepard and releases him on bail. The following day... Shepard is indicted for murder, and the grand jury foreman, Bert Winston, complains that members of the grand jury were under enormous pressure. Dr. Shepard is rearrested, and uh, this is his last day of freedom for nearly 10 years. On October 18th, the first trial begins. The prosecution is relying on Coroner Gerber's evidence. There was never any fingerprint or blood evidence introduced that was contrary to him being guilty. When we get later in the episode, you're going to hear exactly what I'm talking about. So Coroner Gerber decided he was guilty, like right after arriving at the crime scene within an hour. He told another detective, you know, it's obvious the doctor did it. And that's, that's a straight up quote. This is within an hour of him arriving at the scene. Now, a couple months later, on December 21st, he is found guilty of second-degree murder, and he is given life in prison with the possibility for parole after 10 years. Man, I mean, the the ripple effect, just, the ripple effect was fucking insane. Sam Shepard's mom killed herself by gunshot a few weeks after this. His dad died a few days later. After that, from like an ulcer, some some sort of ulcer, and uh, Marilyn's father committed suicide in 1963, but Sam Shepard also had two brothers, and these two guys hired a forensic scientist by the name of Dr. Paul Leland Kirk. So Paul Leland Kirk starts going through everything, and he finds bloodstains on the cellar stairs that weren't found before. And this is believed to be from the murder weapon. He also finds blood spatter in the house that contradicts Sam as the killer. Because the the, the strokes that the person used uh, with whatever the, uh, the murder weapon was, he had determined that the person was left-handed. All right, Sam Shepard was right-handed. So, you know, that was one little piece of evidence. Sam Shepard is, is sitting in prison, okay? It's 1961. Then Sam's brothers hire a new attorney by the name of F. Lee Bailey, and he gets the case reopened, saying it was poorly managed by the judge at that time. They wouldn't move the trial out of Cleveland because he was up for re-election and used the trial 
as a tool to get reelected. And that's why he was really trying hard to wrap it up. The, the media just created this pressure. Now, what also happens is a syndicated columnist by the name of Dorothy Kilgallen, she admitted that she had an unethical conversation with the judge at the time and that the judge told her he saw the case as open and shut and he's guilty as hell. And if that was the scenario, then the judge should have been removed from the case. He shouldn't have even been allowed to try it. So on July 15th, 1964... F. Lee Bailey filed a petition saying that the judge should have shielded the jury from the media coverage because it made him biased. The very next day, the federal court says he didn't have a fair trial. The petition was granted. All new and suppressed evidence will be seen at the new trial. And Dr. Sam Shepard was ordered to be released. So, almost two years later, in June 1966, by an almost unanimous vote, the Supreme Court ruled Sam Shepard did not receive a fair trial. In October of that same year, the retrial starts. Dr. Paul Leland Kirk testifies that the blood spatter would have covered the murderer in the victim's blood. Sam Shepard only had one little spot on his pants. It was determined that most of the blood spatter on the walls at the scene was from a backswing of a weapon from somebody's left hand. Like I had previously mentioned, Sam was right-handed. It's also brought up that during the autopsy, Marilyn Shepard's teeth showed signs of inflicting a powerful bite right before her death. Now, Marilyn's teeth were found under her body. And there were no bite or teeth marks found on Sam when he was initially examined. The largest blood spot found on the closet door was from a puncture wound. And it did not match Marilyn's or Sam's blood. There were also three witnesses that testified to seeing someone matching the description that Sam gave about a tall, brushy-haired man. Two of those witnesses were a married couple who were neighbors. They saw a man matching that description around 3.30 to 4 a.m. around the shepherd home. This was right around the uh, the time of death. I do got to ask, though, the fuck are these people doing up at 3.30 to 4 a.m.? This is like 1954, all right? It's hard telling. It's not like TV was on 24 hours a day back then. I don't know. Anyway, they came through. They testified as witnesses saying they saw a man matching that description around the time of the murder around the Shepherd home. They said that the man looked 32 to 42 years old, wide nose, bushy crew cut hair, light auburn colored, and he had long sideburns. They also bring up some of the injuries that Sam Shepherd had. The doctor testified that the injuries on his neck that he sustained could not have been self-inflicted. And they also bring up, during the initial exam, his feet were shriveled up like they'd been in water for a long time. And that would kind of correlate with the story of him being knocked out down on the beach. The x-ray from the neck wound shows that there was a fracture on the vertebrae and that there was no way to fake the swelling that occurred at the base of his skull. So in 1966, Sam Shepard is acquitted. So this was perceived by the media and people as bullshit. They viewed it as him getting out on a technicality. 
He was still not innocent. He was just acquitted and let out because he didn't have a fair trial. So the media and all the people still fucking hate this guy. All right. So they found him not guilty in the second trial. Uh, three weeks later, on December 7th, 1966, he shows up as a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And then he worked with a ghostwriter and wrote a book called Endure and Conquer, which presented his side of the case. And he talks about his 10 years in prison. And ironically enough, the ghostwriter didn't even want to fucking work with the guy. It says that he uh, felt conflicted about it because he actually believed Sam Shepard did it. So, because of his troubles with, uh, you know, medical practice and all that, he became a professional wrestler. He came out in August 1969 at the age of 45. I can't say for certain he's innocent. I can't say for certain that he's guilty. But when you turn professional wrestler after the past that Sam Shepard had, don't use the nickname Killer. When he debuted as a wrestler, he went by the name Killer Sam Shepard. Really bad taste right there. Now, he did wrestle 40 matches, did some tag team bouts and shit like that, and because every fucking buddy in the country knew who this guy was, they were buying tickets to come see him wrestle. So, PR did a hell of a job on that. Now, unfortunately, when Sam did get out of prison, he uh, he turned to alcohol, like, really, really heavily, man. Um... So towards the end of his life, uh, he was drinking as much as two-fifths of liquor a day, which is about 1.5 liters. And on April 6, 1970, Sam Shepard was found dead in his home in Columbus, Ohio. The official cause of death was a type of brain damage that uh, is associated with advanced alcoholism. And he is buried in Columbus, Ohio. Now, his body was uh, exhumed in September 1997 for DNA testing as part of a lawsuit brought on by his son to clear his father's name. After the test, the body was cremated and the ashes were put into a, a mausoleum in Mayfield Heights, Ohio. They were put in the same mausoleum as his wife, Marilyn. All right, so before we go any further, we do have to take a word from our sponsor, Manscaped. If you want to, you can fast forward. If not, this is a really great deal on a really great product. If you decide to fast forward, I'll see you guys here in about three, four minutes. Support for Mysterious Circumstances is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer just for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MYSTERIOUS at manscaped.com. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I love the performance of this thing. The craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level. I tell you what, you know, <laughs> I, you use the same trimmers for a long time, they get dull, okay? There's been a couple instances, not really proud of, you know, I'm in a hot hurry, man. I'm trying to, like, get this date riled up. I'm in the bathroom, going to town. If the teeth on the trimmer are dull, you're just ripping hairs out, dude. And then you got to worry about cutting the shit out of your nuts because you get a little bit too close Whatever the case may be, 
dude, I've done it before, no pun intended, but the damn uh, bathroom looked like a murder scene, because I'm out here bleeding by my balls, and then they scab up, and it just looks weird, it's very uncomfortable, there's just no confidence there. That's what I love about the Lawnmower 4.0. It is smooth, the teeth move back and forth real fast so you don't have to worry about pulling hairs out as opposed to cutting them off. I can't recommend this enough. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced safe skin technology and it makes me feel a lot more confident when shaving the uh, the family jewels. The upgraded trimmer includes a multi-function on-off switch that can engage a travel lock. It also gives you the ability to turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off when needed for a precise shave. The Lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes 1 through 4. And did I mention the wireless charging? The new wireless charging system uses less electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last even longer. So men, if you've been shaving with the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it all wrong. No person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth, alright? It's time to get your own ball hair and body trimmer with Manscaped to make me time the best time and enhance your confidence with some nice, smooth boys. Your balls will thank you. Now get 20% off and free shipping with the code MYSTERIOUS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code MYSTERIOUS. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. So getting into the theories, facts, and evidence. Alright, first one being Sam's guilty. He did it. His story was made up because there were no signs of forced entry. There was no murder weapon found at the scene. His son was sound asleep this entire time of this brutal beating and Sam trying to chase down this attacker. They also had a dog in the home that never barked. The desk drawers were neat, which is not normal when there is a robbery. So, you know, they start going towards the motive. Now, I will bring this up. Supposedly, there was no sign of forced entry but there actually was on the basement door, and it was never entered as evidence, unfortunately. Now, the coroner, Dr. Sam Gerber, when he was in court, he was talking about the blood off Marilyn's pillow. He said, quote, In this blood stain, I can make out the impression of a surgical instrument. And then at the second trial, when Gerber was forced to identify what kind of instrument was to blame, he couldn't. He said, I hunted all over the United States and couldn't find one. Then we have this really weird piece of evidence. In a bush outside the house. Now, if you remember me talking earlier how Sam Shepard, when um, the hoax got there, when they got to his house, he was shirtless, okay? He also was missing his watch. So, in a bush outside of the Shepard house, Dr. Sam Gerber found a green canvas bag. In this bag was Sam's watch, his fraternity ring, and a key, and all of these items were covered in blood. Now, what's the possible motive for him to kill his wife? An affair, okay? He was having a two-year affair with a lab tech at the hospital by the name of Susan Hayes. So that's what they point to for being a motive. Personally, 
I'm not here to like criticize people's life decisions unless they're complete pieces of shit. And like I said, I can't say whether or not Sam is guilty or innocent, but because the guy's having an affair, I don't necessarily think that's a motive to bludgeon the fuck out of your wife. Okay. So moving forward, let's look at, uh, let's look at a couple suspects. The most popular one being a guy named Richard Eberling. Eberling was a handyman and window washer who worked for the Shepherds and a lot of other houses in the neighborhood. He had intimate knowledge of the house's layout, and he also knew about that little-known entrance down in the basement, where, as we know, is the only place that showed signs of forced entry that was not brought up in the first trial. So in 1959, Richard Eberling was arrested for robbing a home that he worked at. When he gave up all the stuff that he had stolen... There were two rings that belonged to Marilyn Shepard. Not only that, but when he was being questioned, he volunteered information saying that he had cut himself at Shepard's house the week of the murder. At this point, how did he even know that investigators had found three different types of blood at the scene and two different blood stains? Kind of weird, right? But Richard Everling passed a polygraph test so he was never investigated anymore after that. The county prosecutor still refused to look at any new evidence, and this was in 1959, okay? Then, in 1989, Eberling is convicted of aggravated murder of Ethel Durkin. Now, this particular death, when he killed this woman, guess how he killed her? He beat her to death. He actually forged her will first and then beat her to death to collect on the $1 million insurance policy. Now, while he was in jail, he wrote a letter to Sam Jr., and he was sharing little-known facts about the case as well in this letter. Now, around 1998, Richard Eberling gave a deathbed confession saying that he killed Marilyn Shepard, and the witness who heard this deathbed confession said, He told me that he killed her and that he hit her husband on the head with a pail and that the bitch bit the hell out of me. And that's a direct quote from the person who heard this deathbed confession. Another really interesting suspect is Esther Hoke, all right, the mayor's wife, who showed up on the scene. One thing that I always thought was weird, like, you know, I can understand the dude calling his buddy the mayor, but why is his wife getting dressed to go with him to all of this, to see the scene, or, you know, what was the whole deal with that, okay? F. Lee Bailey himself believed the murder was committed by another woman. There were rumors that there was an affair with Marilyn and Spencer Hoke, so this would have been a murder of jealousy, but there was no evidence to prove the relationship. It was only rumors. Now, during the retrial... This is weird too. Esther Hoke admitted she started a fire in her fireplace the morning of the murder. Mind you, this is fucking July. Why is she starting a fire the morning of the murder in July? Could it be to get rid of bloody clothes? Because whoever killed Marilyn Shepard would have been covered in blood. And there's all that lost time between them getting there, them calling the cops... There's a lot of holes right in that, that timeline. Now, F. Lee Bailey did suggest that she was trying to burn bloody clothes and other evidence, and the fact that she was left-handed. Whether this is a good suspect or a good theory, it was still never looked into. 
Another suspect was an ex-Air Force pilot by the name of Major James Call. So an ex-FBI agent named Bernard Connors says James Call went AWOL to go on this huge murderous crime spree. Now, this also fits James Call's M.O. When he went on this crime spree, he would break into houses while people were sleeping, and he was very, very fucking violent. When they caught James Call, he had a crowbar on him that could have been used as a murder weapon, and he had a scar on his left index finger that could have been from bite marks. He was questioned when he was caught, but authorities never pursued that lead. Now I'm going to head over to the University of Missouri in Kansas City, uh, their law school site. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go through because, like I said, this was not a question of who else did it. It was a question of whether or not Sam Shepard was innocent based on the analysis of the evidence given. They really laid this shit out. I'm not going to lie. This is impressive, but, you know, it's a law school, so kind of figure that. So here's the argument that Sam did do it. Sam Shepard autographed a copy of his book, Endure and Conquer, for Phyllis Moretti, a beauty salon owner. In addition to his autograph on the cover page, Sam wrote a big yes under the heading, Did Sam Do It?, on the teaser page. A handwriting expert concluded that the yes was from Sam's handwriting. This seems to be a pretty bold admission of guilt to a good friend. But the word yes appears above the words even the most anti-Shepherd reader will find some doubts. So why would Shepherd suddenly reveal his guilt to someone he didn't know that well? It's also suspicious that Moretti considered writing her own book on the Shepherd case. Number two, the Shepherds had a dog named Coco. You would think the dog would have barked the night that Marilyn was murdered. The barking presumably would have woken up Sam in time to prevent the attack on Marilyn, but Sam said he never heard the dog bark. But Richard Eberling said the dog didn't bark at him when he went to the shepherd's home to wash windows. Lack of forced entry. Police discovered no sign of forced entry in the shepherd's home, making the intruder theory implausible. But the Aherns, the uh, couple who had uh, went to their party that night, they could not remember whether or not Marilyn locked the kitchen door. Also, defenders of Shepard suggest that the intruder entered through the basement, pointing to a tool mark near the basement door. Number four, Sam said he wore a t-shirt on the night of the murder. Presumably, if uh, he was the killer, the t-shirt would contain many blood spots from the brutal murder. Asked by police about the shirt, Sam said, maybe the man I saw needed one. I don't know. It's kind of fucking weak right there, but a torn t-shirt that matched Sam's size was eventually found a few yards from the Shepherd property line. The t-shirt was not found to have any blood on it. Number five, the delay in reporting the murder and inconsistencies in the story. Sam's first call after the murder at 5.40 a.m. was to his friend Spencer Hoke, not the police. Autopsy results put the time of the murder between 3 and 4 a.m., and Sam's watch stopped at 4.15. Why the delay in reporting the crime? Sam says he was knocked out by the killer, but the couple of hours between the murder and reporting the crime also could have allowed Sam to clean off blood and fingerprints, hide or destroy his t-shirt, and make the home look like it had been burglarized. Several comments made by Shepard on the morning of the murder are, at best, 
odd and most likely deceitful. For example, after the hoax arrived, Shepard remarked, someone should do something for Marilyn, even though he had to know that she was dead at that point. He also added details to his story in each of his first few retellings. Number six, signs of a staged sex crime and robbery. There is evidence that steps were taken to make the crime look like a murder-burglary, when in fact it was only a murder. For example, police found desk drawers pulled open but evenly and without missing items. Sam's doctor's bag was overturned but nothing was missing. Also, there was no sign of forcible rape on Marilyn's body. Number 7. The murder scene suggested overkill, not the act of a burglar. Various theories have been offered as a motive for the murder. For example, it was suggested that Sam went to Marilyn's bed seeking sex, and when she resisted, he flew into a rage and killed her. Number 8. Sam Shepard had more than one affair during his marriage to Marilyn, including his relationship with Susan Hayes, a California lab technician, which he originally denied at the Coroner Gerber's 1954 inquest. He also had an affair with Bay Village resident Julie Lossman shortly before the murder. At least some of his relationships were known to Marilyn, who clearly resented them. But guests who visited the Shepherd home the evening before the murder reported the Shepherds seemed to be getting along very well. Number 9. Sam's thumbprint was discovered on the headboard of his wife's single bed. The thumbprint is in a place one might expect to find it if Sam were there murdering or getting ready to murder his wife. No fingerprints of anyone other than Sam or Marilyn were found in the bedroom. But there is nothing terribly suspicious about finding a husband's fingerprints on the wife's headboard. There are many innocent explanations for the, the thumbprint being there. Next one is Sam's bloody watch. Sam Shepard's bloody watch was found in a green bag on a bluff above Lake Erie. The watch had stopped at 4.15 a.m., suggesting that it had become waterlogged at that time and later went forward another 45 minutes before stopping at 5. Sam said the water under the crystal got there when he golfed in the rain or inadvertently water skied with his watch on. He claimed the blood got on his watch when he took his wife's pulse. He suggested the murderer took the watch off his wrist when he lay unconscious on the beach, then put it in a bag with a couple of other items, and then dropped it or threw it away. Oddly, if the murderer was also a burglar, Sam's wallet was still in his pants pocket, and prosecutors suggest that the blood on the watch came from blood spray at the time of the murder. But defense experts contend the blood spots on the watch were not made by flying blood. Next one is the missing table lamp. A witness testified he repaired a metal lamp for the shepherds and placed it on the table next to Marilyn's bed. After the murder, there was no lamp on the table, an obvious place for a lamp. At the civil trial, lawyers for the county argued that the pillow stain is consistent with the U-shaped bow that surrounded the bulb and supported the shade, suggesting that the table lamp might have been used as the murder weapon. At the first trial, the coroner described the bloody imprint as resembling a surgical instrument, but the stain could have come from the pillow folding over on clotted blood. Also, a badly dented flashlight was discovered in Lake Erie near the Shepherd home and might have been the murder weapon. Number 12, no type A blood. Richard Eberling was found to have type A blood. No type A blood was discovered in any testing of blood stains coming from the Shepherd bedroom. 
Marilyn had type O blood, and that was the same type of blood found on Shepard's trousers. Now, let's go over here to say Sam was innocent. We got Dr. William Fallon, the director of a trauma center, described Shepard's neck and other injuries as serious and almost impossible to self-inflict, but it is conceivable that Marilyn, under attack from Sam, caused Sam's injuries. Next one... On the evening before the murder, Sam and Marilyn seemed to be getting along fine. They had a meal with friends and then watched the movie Strange Holiday on television. As they watched the movie, Marilyn sat on Sam's lap. This affectionate behavior doesn't suggest that of someone seriously thinking about killing his wife. Number 3. Sam's Lack of Previous Violence Most husbands that kill their wives have assaulted them at previous times in their marriage. There is no evidence that Sam previously assaulted Marilyn, nor had Sam ever been charged with any other act of violence. Also, Marilyn's body was found by police spread-eagled with nipples and pubic hair exposed. Defenders of Shepard suggest that exposing a wife in that way for others to see is not something husbands do. Yeah, I don't know about that. Number four, the damaged trophies. The police search turned up trophies that seem to have been scratched or in other ways damaged. There is no reason why Shepard, proud of his athletic prowess, would have damaged his own trophies. The damage would more plausibly have been caused by a killer who hated the Shepherds and was jealous of Sam's accomplishments. But it is not clear that the trophies were damaged on the day of the murder. The damage might have been inflicted before then. Next one, the blood spattered on the walls of the bedroom suggests that Marilyn's blood was flying in all directions when she was killed. If Sam was the killer, one would expect to find Marilyn's blood spots in numerous places on Sam's pants. Sam's pants, except for one significant stain, were blood-free. Also, his shoes, socks, and belt were without blood stains, and blood stains are very hard to wash off. According to DNA expert Dr. Muhammad Tahir, the blood stain on Sam's pants did not come from either himself or Marilyn, but presumably from the killer. But if Shepard fought the killer, why didn't he have more blood on his pants? Also, the blood stain found on the pants was type O, as was Marilyn's, and Eberling had type A blood. Next up, according to DNA expert Dr. Muhammad Tahir, only 1 out of 42 people have a DNA profile consistent with a large blood stain found on a closet door near Marilyn's bed, and Richard Eberling is one of those rare people. But, the DNA tested was old and badly deteriorated, so the results aren't very reliable. Also, the prosecution never really offered a clear motive for the murder. There really isn't any. Marilyn knew about Sam's affairs and seemed resigned to the situation. They had a pleasant evening the night before with friends. They had a young son sleeping in a nearby room, and talk of divorce was sometime in the past. Why would Sam, suddenly in the middle of the night, trot up the stairs from the daybed on which he was sleeping and brutally murder his wife? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, some murders don't seem, but some murders don't ever seem to make sense. We have no way of knowing what might have transpired in the early morning hours of July 4th. Sam, for example, might have demanded sex and been refused by Marilyn, sending him into a rage. At the very least, we know that Sam's and Marilyn's marriage was troubled. He had reasons for wanting her out of the way. 
Number eight, if he did it, he'd have a better story. Sam was a reasonably smart guy with some time to come up with a story. Why couldn't he have a more plausible story than the one he gave? Possibly the very implausibility of the story, getting knocked out by the killer twice, the murderer taking his wallet from his pants and then leaving it in the living room, wrestling with the murderer on the beach. Sam's description of the killer was a bushy-haired man makes it more likely to be true. At the same time, Dude got knocked out twice, like, get the fuck out. He was a serious athlete, man. Like, in his early days, he was a fucking athlete. That, and he was also a doctor. You know what I mean? Like, if you want your wife out of the way that bad, I'm pretty fucking sure a neurosurgeon can figure out a better way to kill you than viciously beating your face and head with a fucking blunt object, alright? Granted, I know that's not how the whole rage killings work, but at the same time, he was a smart guy. Next up... Dr. Muhammad Tahir, the DNA expert, determined that one small sample of sperm was found in Maryland, and it did not come from Sam. But, so little sperm was found that it suggests contamination of the sample was the source of that. Also, Sam Shepard is right-handed. Although he could have used his left hand to uh, hit Marilyn while holding her down with his right, so, I don't know, I, re I really don't find that as, like, a huge deal in the case of him being fucking innocent. Next, we got Coroner Gerber, who claimed the bloody imprint on the pillow was made by a surgical instrument, searched high and low for a surgical instrument, that could produce such an imprint. He never found one. A more likely murder weapon was a flashlight, and a dented flashlight was found in Lake Erie in front of the Shepherd home. Sam might have tossed it into the lake after using it to kill Marilyn. Dr. Paul Leland Kirk said blood on a blood trail seemed to come from a cut hand and Sam had no cut on his hand when examined after the murder. But there is no way of proving the blood came from a cut hand. It could have had a different source. Next up, Sam's refusal to confess. Most criminals subjected to the grueling hour-after-hour -hour interrogation that Sam Shepard went through might confess. Shepard never did. Publicly, at least, he maintained his innocence until his death. Even his own lawyers, to whom he might have been, ex you know, expected to confess his guilt to, were never told by Sam that he was guilty. Sam Shepard, like any other murderer, had a strong reason not to confess. In addition to trying to avoid prison, he might have had an interest in protecting his son from having to live with the additional burden that his father was a murderer. Also, his yes, uh, that was in that book that I mentioned earlier, might have been seen as a confession. Number 14, Eberling stole Marilyn's ring and admitted bleeding in the Shepherd home. Arrested in 1959 for larceny, Richard Eberling, a former window washer for the Shepherds, was found to be in possession of two rings owned by Marilyn Shepherd. Question about the Shepherd murder by police, Eberling said he had bled in the house just days before the murder, after he accidentally cut himself. He also knew of an obscure basement entrance to the Shepherd home. But, F. Lee Bailey concluded that Eberling was not the murderer, based on Eberling apparently passing a lie detector test. He actually called Eberling as a defense witness in the 1966 trial, and Sam Shepard looked at him he was only a few feet away from him when he testified, and he never once suggested, that's the guy I saw that night. 
Another one is a, a former nurse's aide to Ethel Durkin, who was murdered by Eberling, testified at the civil trial. Eberling revealed to her that he killed Marilyn Shepard. In 1998, shortly before his death, Eberling gave an interview with James Neff, the author of the book on the Shepard murder mystery, described finding himself in the bloody Shepard bedroom. Neff reported him as saying, My God, I had never seen anything like it. I got out of there. But, Eberling apparently passed a lie detector test showing that he did not kill Shepard. Moreover, Eberling was given many plausible accounts of the Shepard murder, some of them demonstrably false. So, there's some fucking arguments for you. <laughs> I know that's a lot, but uh, I'm trying to cover all bases. Like this this case, somebody needs to make a long-form podcast about, about this whole case and the trials and shit. Like, there is so much going on here. Now, I do want to reference this uh, this article by Jen Steer from this Fox8.com article that she wrote because uh, the assistant prosecutor in the civil trial in 2000 said it was a gruesome murder that was staged to look like a sexual assault. And then the crime scene, being the house, was staged to look like a theft or drug theft. Now, the case was, like I said, a media fucking circus, okay? And investigators pointed to his affair with Susan Hayes who was a former hospital employee, um, as the motive for the murder. And then you have Sam Gerber, who testified the murder whip weapon, which was never found, was a surgical instrument, which implicated the fuck out of Sam Shepard, right? So like I said, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Shepard's conviction, uh, calling it a mockery of justice. Now, at the second trial, F. Lee Bailey attacked Dr. Gerber's credibility, also during the third trial, DNA testing showed blood on the closet door did not belong to Sam or Marilyn. Neither did the blood on Sam's pants. Also at the third trial, the Shepherd team argued that Richard Everling uh, was the likely killer. And advances in DNA testing later cast suspicion on Everling again. The tests did not identify or exclude Everling as the source of blood stains at the Shepherd's home. Terry Gilbert, who represented the Shepherd estate in 2000, said DNA after the civil trial proved a blood trail from the porch belonged to Eberling, but Sam Shepherd never identified Eberling as a suspect. He knew the guy. He was the fucking handyman and the window washer. Now, like I said, Eberling was convicted of aggravated murder in the 1984 death of his employer, Ethel Durkin. Her sister, Myrtle... Frey was murdered in 1962, but that case was never solved. Eberling died in prison in 1998. Now, F. Lee Bailey, here we go again, man, with, uh, with the Hoke family here. On the morning of Marilyn's murder, Bay Village Mayor Spencer Hoke and his wife Esther received a call from Sam. Bailey's theory is that Esther caught her husband having an affair with Marilyn and killed her for it and that Spencer was the bushy-haired man Shepard wrestled on the beach. Anonymous letters that were sent to the Bay Village Police Department in the month after support that Spencer Hoke and Marilyn Shepard were engaged in an extramarital relationship. Bailey also said he thinks a set of fireplace tongs were the murder weapon. He said, None of the blows were fatal. None of them were struck with great force which suggests the killer was either a female or a young boy. So, man, there's so much going on here, and like I said, I'm straight 50-50. I mean, 
honestly, I, I, I don't know. I can't really say I'm 50-50. I just, there's so much shit that doesn't add up with Sam Shepard actually murdering his wife. But then again, trying to evaluate the information on either side, it's just weird as fuck. You have those gaps in time. You have all these affairs between all these different people. They actually exhumed Marilyn's body to fucking test the fetus, like the the four-month-old fetus that was inside her when she died to see if it was actually Sam's kid or not. They couldn't because uh, the formaldehyde uh, from, you know, the embalming or whatever over the course of time just kind of, you know, deteriorated the uh, the fetus, so they couldn't get anything off of it. But I don't know, man. There's a lot of shit going on. But anyway, oh, man, ways you can get a hold of me. Uh, I'm on Instagram, at Mysterious underscore podcast. You can come like the Facebook page. Uh, if you join the Facebook group, you got to answer the questions to get in. Otherwise, you're going to get fucking declined or just sit there in limbo. Either way, um, you can find me on Twitter, at PodcastMC. Uh, where else here? I have a merch shop. You can go to tpublic.com, MC Podcast, and find my merchandise there. I never really uh, advertise it too much. I actually got some pretty cool shit in there. But yeah, I'm going to read reviews here later on probably Wednesday's episode, so um, if you want some reviews read, get them in, and thanks all for joining, let me know what you guys think, what your theories are, a lot of information flowing around, and that's about all I got for you, so until next time, see you folks on the flip side.